Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. Stan Teresen is the show. I'm your host, and I'm thankful that you're with me today. I uh, spent virtually every solid ground in 2021 of focusing on trends in this country towards totalitarianism inimical to Christian freedom, inimical to all freedoms, actually, but um, it's a particular concern for me, obviously, being a Christian when Christian freedoms are under attack. Now, I just realized it's probably not inimical to all freedom because totalitarianism always favored the power, the ones in power. They had tremendous freedom, and it was the ones that were the naysayers or the underlings that had none or very little or their freedom was curtailed. And we do see that in this culture today. Uh, if you have the right viewpoint um, and you hold, uh, you're in the right crowd, so to speak, um, then there's no problem. You have the freedom to say anything you want, even if it deeply and profoundly <laughs> offends other people, especially and particularly people on the political right, if you will, um, and and Christians. With all of the the concern about using language that bothers people, uh, obviously. A certain language that might be construed to be a um, put down on someone of color or some race or maybe a particular gender. And by the way, it doesn't have to actually be meant that way and be inherent to those words. If it can be construed that way and someone indeed is construes it, well, that can get you into trouble. Okay. But nobody seems to care at all about the way certain words that are um, near and dear to a Christian's heart are spoken. God's name, Jesus' name, things related to that. You can say whatever you want using religious terminology <laughs> Uh, generic to Christianity, and no one's going to bat an eye. And if you raise an objection, you're 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 not you're not going to get a hearing. What this demonstrates is that um, sensitivity in people's feelings are not the issue. What sensitivity in people's feelings turn out to be is a way of of enforcing one's own way. That is, there are ideologies that are in play here, and in order to get the ideologies affirmed and not contradicted, um, then appeals are made to being nice and being kind, etc., etc., when no such, or, or being diverse, but no such appeal is made regarding a massive segment of the country who, for whom certain expressions of diversity are offensive, or behaviors or language are offensive, given their worldview and their personal convictions, okay? And indeed, sometimes those con convictions themselves are being silenced. Incidentally, I, I'm just thinking of the titles of those articles. If you go to str.org, you can find them. 
if you haven't received them already. These are the solid grounds that come out every other month, about 3,500 words, and um, you can sign up for it. Would go to our face, go to our homepage, and down at the bottom on the left-hand side, I think there's a sign-up feature, or maybe somewhere on the right-hand side, up towards the top, there's a sign-up feature. But if you haven't signed up, please do so. You're missing out on a lot. If you own any books that I have written, virtually every chapter of every book has come out of the things that we send out for free every month to people in our community that are kind of officially part of our community because they've signed up. And that includes the Solid Grounds bi-monthly, and then alternating months, a shorter mentoring letter that's only two pages, 800 words or so, um, that it's our way of keeping you informed and educated. But in 2021, I started out with an article called Iron Curtain Diary, reciting or retelling my experiences behind the Iron Curtain in 1976 working with Christians who were persecuted. By the way, I give detail there because I actually kept very detailed notes and after I came out, after five and a half weeks, I was in Austria at a special place for people who had been working in the East. And uh, I spent four or five days just banging away based on my notes and my own recent recollection of all these things that had taken place. Uh, <clears throat> it's actually maybe 50 or 60 typewritten pages. So I have a whole record of all of that. But I drew from that record to write this piece, Iron Curtain Diary. The next one was called The Primal Heresy, and I talk about the problem with relativism, which goes right back to the third chapter of the story, the account of reality that we know as the Bible. And, um, and I talk about that one of two things are going to prevail, and history has shown this, either truth— that is, people's commitment to truth, whether it's moral truth or truth about the nature of the world, facts about the world, <clears throat> which would include biology, by the way, if you're thinking about the gender issues, either truth or power. Once truth is disregarded, all that's left is power. Okay, so that's called the primal heresy. Uh, then I have a piece called Freedom Fading, and I start looking at the impact of what uh, Rod Dreher calls in his book, Live Not By Lies, soft totalitarianism, and how the sideways pressure from the culture, and whether it's uh, big pharma or big business now, or whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter, and all the cancellations that are, that are involved there, or doxing people who have the wrong points of view and making their... Uh, their identity public and their location public and where they live so they can be further objects of scorn and harassment. All of these things are coming from the side. They're not coming from the top down, and as it was in the Soviet Union, from the government on the people. No, the government is allowing all this to happen to accomplish its ends because the government is profoundly leftist right now. And so if uh, social institutions can accomplish leftist totalitarian ends, they're going to let them do that. And that's what's happening. I describe that. Then I have a piece called The Evening News. And given that I have made these claims about creeping totalitarianism, I just 
recount a whole bunch of things that are happening in the news that bear testimony to the claim I've been making about the year. And then the final one, and maybe I'm missing one, I'm just going by memory, is I, uh, I have a piece called The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus. And there I try to put the facts, the biblical facts, straight as to what Jesus' mission actually was, according to him, and according to all of those authoritative people that spoke in the Gospels about him and what he came to do. And they all had spoke with the same voice. And it wasn't to help people get along, and it wasn't to campaign for the disenfranchised or for the, um, or for the poor. I mean, the whole Gospel of John, there's only one reference to the poor, and that is the poor you always have with you. It was dismissive in light of something else that was going on, the expensive perfume that was being used by the woman to anoint him, essentially, for burial. He was more important than the poor. He's putting things in order there. It's not that he didn't care about the poor. God doesn't care about the poor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm focusing in on Jesus' mission. And though Jesus did include in those people in his circle the disenfranchised, he was not a champion for the disenfranchised as such, or for the poor as such. It just never happened. He was a champion for the repentant sinner, regardless of what their station was in life, in culture, or their financial means were. You could be rich and repentant, or poor and unrepentant. The rich and repentant was accepted. Give, for example, the uh, tax gatherer beating his breast in the back of the synagogue saying, God have mercy on me, a, a sinner. That man was rich, and he went away justified. But you have many poor, look at John chapter 6, people who came to Jesus to get a free meal. That's what he says. He had just read the, fed the 5,000, or the 4,000, he's fed two different times, different numbers, and he said, you're coming back to get a free meal. You want a free meal? I'm the free meal. I'm the bread of, he- of life that comes down from heaven. Eat me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And what happened? Many of them left. Why? They just couldn't stomach what he had just said. Now, when you look in the passage there, he is not talking about the Lord's Supper. He is talking about, in, 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 in a parallel metaphor, about putting your faith in him. And it's very clear when you look at the structure of the chapter. He's not talking about something they have no idea what it means, something that's going to happen later in the upper room discourse, communion. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about putting faith in him. Okay, so so you have you have um, their Jesus speaking in such a way as to chastise the poor for wanting a free meal. Point being, he had another goal. Now uh, this collection of six, I think I only gave you five titles, but there's six solid grounds for 2020. And they are all building on this theme and building up to this, hopefully informing you about what's happening in culture. Now, that's 2020. 
Now we're a year and a half or so past that, and things have gotten lots worse. And um, it seems like every time I turn around, there is some kind of action, sometimes governmental action, against a person of faith, particularly a Christian, who is simply in his, in his or her private life pursuing their Christianity vocally and talking about things that turn out to be politically incorrect according to the powers that be. So I have uh, in front of me an example of that. I'll read to you in just a moment, but uh, just a little backstory here regarding this organization. About six months ago, I spoke in Phoenix, I think it was, and uh, there were a number of other presenters there, and one of them was Kelly Shackelford. I'd not met Kelly before, not even heard of him, but he is the maybe founder, but certainly the leader of First Liberty, which is an organization like the ADF, the Alliance for Defending Freedom, where you have legal teams that do a defense of those whose religious um, free speech liberties are being violated. I don't know if it's all pro bono or whether they charge for their services in some case, but I'm glad they're there. And actually, ever since I heard Kelly's presentation that day, I sat in the gallery, and I usually do. I don't hide the green room when I'm a presenter. When you got talent out there, like was there that day, or like always when we have events, I was just <laughs> in an event on um, on just a week ago, and there, Frank Turek and Natasha Crane were there. We were all doing this thing, and I sat in the gallery, listened to their their presentations. They were great. I like to learn. So I'm listening to Kelly Shackelford give his presentation, talking about First Liberty, which I'd never heard of until that day, and all the amazing things they were arguing before the Supreme Court and winning, which, by the way, one of them was the reversal of the Lemon case, 1973. I'd never heard of it, but that was the case that made it uh, unconstitutional to pray in school. And so they had ousted a football coach who had prayed on the field before games, and he lost his job. Well, it took him eight years to get his job back again. But uh, his case, defended by First Liberty, finally went to the Supreme Court, and they turned it all around. They canceled out Lemon. Now, a lot of schools don't know this, and they're still enforcing this principle the guidelines that Lemon provided, Lemon is no longer in place. In any event, it was great hearing what they were doing, and my wife and I have been supporting First Liberty ever since. Partly it's, uh, it's for what they do, and also I never know when I'm going to need their help or the ADF's help or someone like them. Thank God for organizations like this that are doing this kind of work. And they are doing a great job. They're arguing before the Supreme Court, and they are winning lots of cases. There's a new case before them, and uh, this is earlier this year. I want to read about it to you as an example, not just to you know do a hat tip to Kelly Shackelford and First Liberty, but um, to give you an idea of what's going on 
in the culture, because a lot of people don't realize this kind of stuff is happening, and it turns out it's happening lots everywhere, because the secular culture is bold and emboldened to do these kinds of things. Now, this is a government action, that is a government agency, but it's happening in NGOs and and, uh, big, big business as well, woke business. And it's not right when it happens anywhere, because we have a first liberty, which is the First Amendment, to protect our speech and our religious conduct, all right? Not just our freedom to go to a church. It isn't freedom to go to the church. It's a freedom to exercise our religion in the many ways that we do, and not just ours as Christians, anyone's religion. The title to this piece, and I'm going to read it to you, and this is a missive that came out of First Liberty. Georgia police officer is forced to quit his job over religious Facebook post. So reading from the piece here, 19-year-old Jacob... um, get the name here, Jacob, they made reference to him earlier, I guess they just had the, oh, Jacob Kersey, K-E-R-S-E-Y, being defended now by First Liberty. 19-year-old Jacob Kersey began working for the police department last May, I guess it was Pat, the last year. He's excited to be an officer and serve the town of 12,000 near Savannah. He says everything was going well until he posted a brief message on Facebook. Okay, now, Facebook is where you have your personal presence, right? Where you have your friends. In fact, that's what they're called, friends. People friend you or ask to be your friend, and you say, okay, be my friend, and and they have access to your Facebook. And a lot of it's family and, and really genuine friends, people you know, that are just finding a way to keep up with what's going on in your life, and you make postings, etc. I have a Facebook. It's not exactly like that because I've got 20,000 people following, but I, I, I'm not really good at keeping up on that. I should be doing more, but nevertheless, Facebook, you know what it is. Okay? So he made a posting on his personal Facebook. Okay? Now, remember, he's working for the police department. He's kind of a newbie. But here's what he posted. God designed marriage. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. That's why there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Now, I think a better term would have been same-sex marriage, but it wouldn't have mattered, really. If God designed marriage a particular way for a man and a woman, one man with one woman becoming one flesh, sex, for one lifetime— permanence, monogamous heterosexual unions for long term. If God did that, then two of the same sex, quote-unquote, marrying doesn't make sense from God's perspective. It's not a marriage any any more than marrying a street lamp would be a marriage or, or a, a six-year-old would be a marriage. I mean, if somebody wants to use the language of marriage equity, or equality, rather. No, well, nobody believes in marriage equality without restraint. They all have standards of some sort. 
The point is, he's just saying that's not really a marriage. It's not a marriage in God's eyes. This is his personal Facebook, and guess what? It's his conviction as a follower of Christ. And it's a sound one, given the Bible. And it's one that I've made, too. It's a point I've made as well in the new book coming out. Now coming out September 12th. We push the date from June to September, called Street Smarts. And I talk about this. I, I think that uh, same-sex marriage is a contradiction in terms. Now, not in a secular sense, but he's not speaking secular, nor am I. We're speaking from the author of marriage himself, God, and as a Christian, this term makes no sense. I know what people mean when they say it. But I, Frank Beckwith, my philosopher friend who helped me write, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, now, what is this, 23 or 4 years running for that book, almost 25, Frank said, and he can turn a phrase, just because you can eat an ashtray doesn't make it food. <laughs> I think that's clever. That's the point here. Now, people can disagree. Fine. This is his point of view. God designed marriage. Marriage refers to Christ and the Church. That's why there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Okay, the article continues. The following day, the following day, by the way, I, I, this hadn't occurred to me before, but how does his supervisor, who comes next, who called him, how does his supervisor know the next day something he posted on his personal Facebook? You know, if you're not a friend isn't this the way it works? I've tried to get on Facebooks before. I look up a name of somebody I used to know, and there it is. I can't get all that information. I don't know what they post. I'm not a friend. I got to get official. I got to say, will you friend me? I don't usually do it because I'm just being curious and I don't want to kind of engage. But you got to get invited to know what people post, right? So, how is it the following day the supervisor called regarding this post? Hmm. I don't know. The supervisor called ordering him to take down the post. I order you. I'm your supervisor. I order you to take down the post on your private Facebook. Oh, okay, just think about it. However, Jacob believed he was being pressured to abandon his Christian beliefs and decided not to remove it. He subsequently met with the police chief and other department leaders. Now, by the way, this young man is not even a year with the force. May to January, when this happened. May started January when this took place. So, I mean, it would be easy for a young man like this, starting a new career for which he trained vigorously for. It's not easy to go through all that's required to be a police officer, to face up to the chain of command ahead of him that's demanding he do something they have no prerogative to require. Oh, well, they're the boss, they're the government, they're the police force, they're the chief, they're department leaders. And in this meeting, 
these leaders outrageously said, I'm reading now from the piece, the post was, quote, the same thing as saying the N-word. Really? The same thing as saying the N-word and then an F-bomb, all those homosexuals, close quote. This is what his leadership told him. Saying that God designed marriage, marriage refers to Christ and the church. That's why there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. That's like dropping an F-bomb on gays and the N-word on blacks. Why? Really? I mean, it does raise the question, why are these people so thin-skinned? Why are they so intense? Why are they so radical? That's, I mean, that's something to think about. They said he could, quote, not post things like that, close quote, and also said his free speech was limited due to his position as a police officer. Really? Constitution applies to everybody, but police officers, apparently. He was placed on administrative leave while the city investigated. What's to investigate? There it is. One, two, three sentences. About a week later, Jacob received a letter saying he could not he could be terminated for any post on any of his private social media accounts. For any post on any of his private social media accounts or any other statement or action that could be perceived as offensive. Okay, there you go. Now, I've talked about this before, but I want to underscore this because it's a major shift in the way the culture responds to things, and this has to do with the offensive part, um, because it's a distortion of the concept of oppression, and it is a feature of critical race theory. So when I began studying CRT, and I used Neil Shenvi, S-H-E-N-V-I, as a source for very clear characterization of it, one of the five characteristics of critical race theory was called oppression, not just oppression, but oppression through ideology. Okay, now I want you to think about something. Oppression. You think of oppression classically. Oppression is when someone else is denied something that they ought to have, that they deserve, or are hurt personally for some inappropriate reason. So you could have blacks that are lynched, that's oppression. You could have Jews that are gassed or or kept from their their uh, place of employment. They couldn't work or they couldn't have positions of leadership in the Third Reich. That's oppression. Or you could have uh, uh, people that can't sit in the front of the bus, they have to sit in the back of the bus or whatever. We can think of all these examples of oppression. But the definition, and, uh, on that view, by the way, that oppression is being hurt physically or being deprived of something that is rightfully yours. That definition have changed. Now, oppression includes 
oppression through ideology. What, what's oppression through ideology? That is, if you have an ideology that is a point of view or a conviction or a belief that someone else doesn't like and can construe it as an offense to them, even though you don't do anything to them, you don't deprive them of anything, you don't hurt them in any active way, you don't interfere with their lives, just the fact that you believe and think contrary to them, that is an act of oppression. Your ideology oppresses them. Now, do you see what's happened now with this expansive definition? Now, people can object to anything they don't like. This hurts me. So they construe an alternate idea as a damage to them. And if there's a damage to them, then they can retaliate. And by the way, this is what Antifa and the like have done. The words are weaponized, is the way they might characterize it. It's your words that express your contrary idea is a weapon hurting them that is an attack on them to which they can respond with self-defense, and the self-defense can in fact be an attack on you physically, or an attack on your property physically, or taking something away from you like your livelihood that you had. In other words, all the things that used to be classical examples of oppression now can be done by those to you, by those who think you are, quote-unquote, oppressing them with your ideas. Oppression through ideology. And here it is. I'll read it again. They said he could not post things like that, and also said his free speech was limited due to his position as a police officer. He was placed on administrative relief while they investigated. Then he received a letter saying he could be, here it is, he could be terminated for any post on any of his private social media accounts or any other statement or any action that could be perceived as offensive. Wait, you offended people with that. That bothered them. You are oppressing them through ideology. That is an act of violence towards them. We don't put up with any acts of violence towards other people. You're fired. Now, you realize this, of course, doesn't work in reverse. This is not a two-way street. Those others can hold all kinds of ideas that oppress us in the same way. If ideas are oppressive, if you can oppress through ideology, and I do not accept that as a legitimate form of oppression, but if it is, wait, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Why can't we cry foul and demand that that person be fired? Well, because it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> By the way, we'd have plenty of justification for doing that if the kinds of things that people are being fired for now applied from our side as well. 
Now, this isn't going to happen. I'll tell you one reason why, because conservatives in general, and Christians in particular, are not retaliatory. They don't play by those twisted rules. Oh, are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. But I'm saying as a rule, that is not the case. But as a rule, the other side is playing this way. That's why all these things are happening. That's why you need an ADF. That's why you need a First Liberty and other organizations like them, because you have to litigate to get your basic rights, or else you will be oppressed in the classical sense of the word not just oppressed by their ideology. That's silly. Grow up. No, you will be oppressed by losing your job, which, by the way, is what happened, and I continue. Jacob realized he faced a choice, compromise his deeply held religious beliefs and, and the expression of them. In other words, he could still hold his belief, he just can't talk about it can't post it anywhere. He can't say anything about it. See, this is kind of the new version of the First Amendment. You can believe whatever you want. You just can't talk about it. You can't actually live as if it's the case. What do you mean, live as if it's the case? Well, are you demanding that I use the right pronouns according to a person's personal preference, even if they don't fit their sex? Yes, of course. Well, th- my conviction is that their mind doesn't determine what their sex is, and therefore the pronouns appropriate to them, but my observation of the nature of reality, and I know why reality is the way it is, because God made it that way. In fact, when Jesus addressed the issue of divorce and remarriage, you know how he started in his answer to the Pharisees? Have you not read? Have you not read? What are you guys reading? Pharisees, Sadducees, leaders of the Jewish people, what are you reading? Have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female? Notice how when Jesus answers a question about divorce and remarriage, he, he goes back to the foundation of marriage, and the foundation of marriage starts with binary sexuality, male and female, Right? So, let's see. Our beliefs regarding these things are not only grounded in reality, but they are, we understand that reality is the way it is because God made it that way. So, we are being told we could believe what we want to believe, but we can't say what we want to say, and we can't live in a way that's consistent with that conviction, because if we live that way and use the wrong pronouns, we are misgendering, and we could be subject, and many are, to disciplinary action. As Jacob was, he was forced to choose between his faith and the job he loved. He had no choice but to resign. And they continue, beyond being outrageous, and dystopian, the city's actions are illegal. Uh, Whatever happened to the 1964 Civil Rights Act? Is that still on the books? This landmark legislation that was meant to restore appropriate civil rights, uh, principally to blacks, although it was much more expansive than that, 
because it included religion, etc. Because blacks had been oppressed, denied their rights. And so this civil rights act said, you can't do that based on color or religion, which it seems to me that's embedded in the first, the religion part is embedded in the first amendment, but okay, just to underscore and to solidify this, we'll say it again. Okay, whatever happened to that? Federal law prevents Americans from being punished by their employers for expressing their religious beliefs. The law is clear. Employers cannot retaliate against employees because of their religious beliefs and practices. What's more, they cannot they may not create a work environment that is hostile towards religion and must protect employees from harassment. Doesn't count anymore. What the city and police did is wrong, violates the Constitution. They owe Jacob a public apology and should take action to adopt policies that recognize the free speech and the free exercise of exercise rights of their employees, which takes me back to the details that the article actually started with, and that is that um, first liberty is defending Jacob Kersey. Um, they, the attorneys actually sent a letter this week to uh, the Port Wentworth Police Department. It's part of the press release here, but I don't even know where Port Wentworth is, but shame on those people. Not the people, but the police department. The people of Port Wentworth, I guarantee you, are fine people. These are people in power that are doing this. And what happens when they do this to Jacob Kersey? All the other people who don't agree with it, agree with the with with this policy, and think that was wrong, shut up, because they don't want to lose their job either. So here is a a letter the attorneys from First Liberty sent to the Port Wentworth Police Department, explaining that officials blatantly discriminated against uh, uh, where am I against Jacob so I'm just got I got too many pages here so I'm getting them mixed up here we, here we go here's what they said and I quote the first the, rather the free exercise clause of the First Amendment protects mr. Kersey's right to express his Christian beliefs in his personal life, and discuss his faith while off-duty. By the way, it probably protects his uh, ability to express himself while on duty, too, but they don't address that because that wasn't the issue here. They're not biting off more than they need to chew. They're just dealing with the specific instance. The Free Exercise Clause does not permit the state to confine religious speech to whispers or banish it to broom closets. If it did, the exercise of one's religion would not be free at all. The department's actions send a message to Christians who hold traditional biblical beliefs about marriage that they are unwelcome as police officers or city employees. Close quote. Well put. 
And then the article finishes by saying we're asking the city and the police department to issue a public statement committing to respect the First Amendment rights of its officers. By, by the way, what, 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 do you realize what's being requested here? We just want you to publicly say you honor the Constitution. We just, that would be nice. Since you're not doing that, can you start doing it and please say that you're going to do that? Issue a public statement committing to respect the First Amendment rights of its officers and to announce an official change of policy that's fully consistent with the First Amendment. Right. By the way, there's this is just one example. I'm just it's just one example. I get notes on these kinds of things all the time. People send me press releases or I get stuff like this from ADF or from Kelly Shackelford's First Liberty or whatever. These people are working hard to protect what ought to be safe from challenge or harassment. Those people exercising First Amendment rights, particularly in this case, religious rights. It's happening all the time. And we are so used to it, this oppression by ideology. Well, you offended me. When people say, well, that offends me, when they say that offends me, what they are acknowledging is that they're being oppressed by your ideology, which isn't oppression at all. It's a difference of a, it's a, it's a, it's a different point of view. How is a different point of view hurt you? Now, a different point of view could lead to actions that hurt you, but it's the actions that are actionable, not the view. This is why I've always been against hate crime legislation, because it takes an action like an assault, which itself is actionable. You can act against it with regards to the law and punish it, and it makes the assault more aggravated. It's an additional crime because of something you had in your mind that was connected to the assault. And so you're getting punished for the assault, and you also get punished for what was in your mind when you made the assault. You get punished for the hate, or presumably the hate. I mean, just because somebody has a says something nasty to someone else that they then assault doesn't necessarily mean they hate that person. And by the way, what about all the other examples of hate where there's no assault involved? Or uh, arguably hate crimes going the other direction. In other words, there's an assault and it's motivated by hostility towards, say, whites. You know, it's very hard to get those prosecuted, and they shouldn't be, in my view. I mean, if there's going to be equality, equal protection under the law, the laws ought to be applied equally. I think that's a bad law. It shouldn't be applied at all. You don't punish thoughts, because thought crimes require thought police. Simple as that. That's what we're facing in spades all the time now. 
and lots of people are being harmed and actually oppressed because of what they believe or what they say regarding their beliefs or what they refuse to say contrary to their beliefs. Okay, now, I didn't start my timer for this show, so I have no idea where we're at. I need some help here. 15. Okay, let's take a quick break, and I'll come back and take a question from the open mic calls. Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. STR outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All right, back at you here. Greg Coco giving you a piece of my mind today and uh, give you a big chunk of it here almost the whole hour talking about the same thing. Time went fast on that issue, but it's really an important issue, and um, this is something we're going to be facing for a long time, in my view. I hope I'm wrong, but just gear up for it. Get ready for it. Um, let's take a uh, an open mic call. We have one here from Tom Pointner that has to do with free will and love. Let's see what he has to say, Tom. Hello, Greg. Love what you do, and I'm a big fan, but I knew it had to happen at some point after 20 fateful years of agreeing with pretty much everything I've heard you say. I finally disagree with you on something. On the November 7th episode of the STR Ask podcast, the question came up on the nature of free will in heaven. The issue was framed around the assumption that you need a free will to love God as he would presumably want to be loved, free of compulsion. Um, And if I'm mischaracterizing your view here, please correct me. But your view, as I heard it, was that free will is not necessary to love. And you gave as an example the love of a parent for his or her child. And you don't have to think about it or choose to love your child. You just do. No free will required. 
And while I find this to be true of myself, as I, as I thought about it, the world is filled with examples of parents specifically not loving their children, um, abortion, abandonment, abuse, even disinterest. Plus, the love that parents have for their children is a, it's a nurturing love. As that child is, let's just call it, you know, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, a helpless, completely dependent human being that's right in front of you, you're 100% responsible for. But God is none of those things. He's spirit. He's invisible. He's not in need of care. He's not a responsibility. And the love that we have for God is a, it's a reverent love, not a nurturing very much, not like the love that we have for a child. So I find it apples and oranges to compare the love for God with the love that parents have for their children. I don't necessarily have a question, but I would, I very much value your thoughts and input. So if you could comment more on this and help me understand your view. Thanks, Greg, for all you do, and may God bless your ministry. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Uh, so let me parse this out. There's a lot of things you said here. Um, the fact that there are people who are parents who are not loving is not relevant to anything we're talking about here. I'm not saying building my case on the fact that every parent is loving and they don't choose the love. It happens. Um, so that there are non-unloving parents is not is not a factor. I just want to move that aside because it doesn't relate to this issue, okay? There was also a statement about love being free will versus compulsion, and I think this is a false dichotomy. What I am arguing for is that love is not compelled, and it is not—first, I said it's not a function of free will, because when we have our deep emotional love or however you want to characterize it, and I use the example of for parents, for children, um, the, the, this isn't something that is chosen by freedom, but it's also not something that's compelled. It is something that happens in virtue of the relationship there. And yes, I understand that a parent and child relationship has unique aspects to it, all of the things that you mentioned, the nurturing and the caring and all of those kinds of things, and we don't have that responsibility towards God. So it seems like it's apples and oranges, all right? But a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, the before, when a parent—I mean, you guys could just assess for yourselves—when you feel the love for your children when they're first born— you, I don't believe that what you are thinking about is I, I'm be, in virtue of the fact that I'm choosing to care and fulfill my responsibility in all these ways for my child, that's loving for them. No, what's happened is the love happens immediately, and then the love helps you to do the hard job of caring for the children that some people don't do well. And maybe they don't have that love in their heart, but regardless of whether they have the heart, love in their heart, the love that you have as a parent is not something that you simply made a free will choice to have. And I was only using the parent as an example. This is true of all the, the intense feelings of love you have. Think about uh, marriage. I mean, you people talk about falling in love. That's not a choosing. That's a, a happening, and sometimes it happens against their desires. The famous Judy Garland song, You Made Me Love You. 
I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. That's a song to Clark Gable. But the, the point is, it's an acknowledgement. People fall into illicit relationships, and I'm not saying it's good, but they could choose to not do that, but the feelings and emotions happen to them, okay? And so I, 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 all I'm saying is, all of the love that we have, that we experience as deep love, as opposed to acting loving when it's appropriate for us to act loving— all of that love is not something we choose, it's something that happens to us, okay? Now, I think that the way God works in our hearts is to create love for Him. I don't buy the notion, and this was the core of it, that unless we have the freedom to reject the love, it's not really love. So, therefore, if in heaven, and well, the counterexample that I give is, wait a minute, God doesn't have the freedom to reject his love for us. He loves by his nature. And in heaven, are we going to have the freedom not to love if we have, is that going to be on the table for us? Or else it's not real love? No, I think we're going to really love God from much more powerfully from the heart, because we're going to see him as he is. And so when we behold him, that love is going to radically intensify. It isn't because we're choosing more to love him. It's because the the lovable aspects of God will be more present to us, okay? Um, Just like, you know, when you're in relationship with your wife, there are a set of circumstances, or your husband, a set of circumstances that take place, that the circumstances themselves— for whatever reason, sometimes a romantic thing or maybe a tragic thing that draws you together radically intensifies your emotional feeling for love. It is not your choice that's doing that. It is some other dynamic that's causing that to happen. Now, that's not compulsion. You're not being forced to love each other. Something else besides your will is responsible for that. And all I'm saying is that the same dynamic that happens in all of our other deeply felt loving relationships is something that happens with God. And it's not a matter of choice at all, and therefore to we, the, the argument that we have to have the freedom to love God of our free will in order for it to be real love completely misses the point. And I think it creates other theological problems. Like I said, God can't be loving, and what happens in heaven? Well, we're going to always choose to love God? No, it's not a choice. We're going to be in love with God, and we're going to be in love with God in the most profound way that we have ever been in love with anyone, because in his case, his excellencies obviously surpass everybody else's, and it's the excellencies that that invoke this sense of affection or deeper love that we'll have with our friends. We are close to friends. We, We engage in relationship, and it's the dynamic of the relationship that produces a sense of love in friendships over time. It's that dynamic. And if there are excellencies that are involved, whether they be aesthetic excellencies like beauty, 
or moral excellencies like kindness, and each of these things have a factor. That's why <laughs> that's why you have love at first sight, right? You have a powerful emotional reaction based on something you see visibly. Now, that's not very deep. It's not very durable in many cases. Other things happen, you know, and you realize humans are real humans, and it takes the shine off. But I just want you to see the dynamic. That is a genuine feeling of emotional attachment based on something happening to us, not on a choice we're making. And incidentally, when the the shine wears off on the aesthetic elements in a good relationship, it's the other virtues that in the relationship begin to shine that continues that attraction. And that's why love can get deeper and deeper and deeper over genuine felt love over the years, even when the aesthetic elements change and the wrinkles form and you know the waistline expands and the hair the the hairline recedes and all that other stuff. All right. But none of these things are choices. These are all things that the quality of the nature of the relationship of the persons involved have an impact on the feeling. So I'm standing behind my point, and I was only using parenthood as one example, that the kind of love, rich love, that we want to have for God is not the kind of thing we choose to have. It's not a function of our free will. It's a function of something else that happens to us. And God may be more responsible for that happening to us than a lot of people think. Something to think about. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.